0: Hello and welcome to the Let's Talk Transformation podcast. This is your host Susan Lewis speaking from Toulouse. In this episode of Let's Talk Transformation we will be discussing reinvention, building and rebuilding organizations to create businesses that are a force for good. I am delighted to welcome Graham Boyd an experienced entrepreneur and consultant leading businesses to become deliberately developmental and self-governing with a fair share's commons incorporation. And he's also the co-author of the book, Rebuild the Economy, Leadership and You. Graham, you have led traditional and self-managed organisations in multinationals and startups. You've led them through phases of growth, turnaround and new category or new business development and you have a quest for creating businesses and an economy that works for all of us and all our needs. This is where we met, a quest we clearly share from a conceptual viewpoint, but also from an operational viewpoint in terms of making it a reality in today's organizations and today's society. Your book, Rebuild, is centered on this notion of building a toolkit to give businesses and leaders the capacity to continuously adapt to rise to the challenges we're all facing, and to find new, more regenerative options. My first question has to be, why rebuild and why now? So what inspired you to write? Well, you co-authored the book, didn't you? What, what inspired you both to rebuild and what are we rebuilding?
1: Yes. A couple of answers to that question. The, the biggest one of why rebuild is, on the one hand, where the world is now is, it's absolutely dire. We cannot continue down the path we're on for more than a decade before we start to get into really serious problems. And by really serious problems, I mean the kind of environmental and humanitarian catastrophes that will make, this year's fires and floods and everything Mm. look like a very, very small warm-up game Mm. compared to what's coming. Yeah, So it has to be now because if we leave it any later before we take really serious action, Mm. we're going to have real problems. Mm. The rebuild has two elements to it. One of the elements is the build, which is we absolutely have to build something that is a fundamentally different system. Simply improving something, fine-tuning where we are, isn't going to do it. It has to be a complete rebuild Mm -hmm. across all of the six ecosystems that I point out in the book. Mm -hmm. The re part of rebuild, though, What we're pointing at there is that much like a caterpillar turning into a butterfly, everything that is valuable out of the caterpillar is part of what is used to build the butterfly. It's not throw everything away in a complete upheaval and then start from scratch. It's a case of let's use what we have to build the new system, in other words, to rebuild. So that's the, the duality that I'm pointing at, that Jack and I mm. are pointing at with that word rebuild, is it's much more like caterpillar to butterfly rather than throw everything that we have away completely and start from scratch.
0: And I love the analogy because... That's what happens, isn't it? The caterpillar uses its imaginal discs and it eats itself to create something new. And I think that can be quite a painful and dark process. Um, but, but I think, and it comes out looking completely different. If I look at the six ecosystems you point to in the, in the book and what you're suggesting in terms of how we as individuals, but also as society and organization can rebuild ourselves and make something completely different it seems quite fitting that we don't know when the butterfly is going to fly out we don't know what it looks like and uh, we don't know what it's going to do when it gets out of its cocoon apart from going a direction so I like that I also like the duality of re and build and I know that the book is built on this idea of duality and complementarities can you tell us a little bit more about that because there's One that's running through it for me all the time, which is my favorite topic, which is the polarity of ego to ego. And I saw that being threaded through almost every chapter. So I think it'd be interesting for you to take us through that idea of building the book on complementarities and the mix the mix of art and physics, if you like, which is in fact the first chapter, but it'd be interesting for you to just frame that for us.
1: Yes. So the whole idea of complementarity, complementary pairs, runs through the entire book. And one example of where complementarity plays out so often in today's discourse is in the question of true or false. If somebody is listening to what I'm saying and disagrees with what I'm saying, they may well say, Graham, you're wrong. They point at what I'm saying as being false. Now, the, what makes that unhelpful in many situations, especially the kind of complex world we're living in today, is the opposite of truth is not necessarily false. Yeah. The, yeah. In the book, we point at a truth square where the opposite of a truth is not that specific truth. Which may not be false. It may simply be that the opposite of this truth is a very different but equally valid truth. Yeah. And until we can recognize that true and false have a complementarity, that sometimes what we need to understand how the world works is to recognize that two or more different concepts are actually fundamentally different and belong together. And the fact that one contradicts the other does not make one of them false. It just means that there are two concepts, both of which are necessary to understand how the world works, that stand in a relationship of tension to each other. And the simple example I'll give you is almost nobody hopefully nobody, but I will say almost (laughs) nobody to be a little bit cautious, Mm. would completely reject the bones in their legs because they work in opposition to the muscles.
2: Mm.
1: Mm. You're not going to get rid of the bones in an attempt to give the muscles the freedom to move better. Our bodies work because the truth of the muscle, that it tenses and contracts, works in opposition to the truth of the bones, which is that it is rigid and doesn't contract. And it's that dynamic interplay between them that enables us to move. And equally, it's the dynamic interplay between my left leg and my right leg that enables me to walk and run. If I tried to eliminate the fact that my right leg moves forwards when my left leg moves backwards, I would be reduced to hopping, which (laughs) is nowhere near as efficient and effective a means of locomotion as having two legs
0: it's interesting though isn't it because you're on what for me is the biggest societal topic that we all have which is learn unlearn relearn essentially what you're saying there is and you say it very well in the book you say you have far more chance of success if you give up on only seeing opposites as mutually exclusive and that we've undoubtedly learned early in our life that something is right or wrong true or false, right or left and I think that's one of our biggest challenges and we can reduce things and not see the larger system because we are in that binary stereotype of it's right or wrong. And I thought a lot about that truth box. I was looking at it thinking, mm, yeah, OK. And it did take me some time to get my head around what I think was complementary in the opposite. But it also takes me on to the other subject, which is very present in your book around the stories we tell ourselves. and changing lenses so essentially looking at the world deliberately from different perspectives chapter two is dedicated to that isn't it stories and lenses and can you take us through how you see that that feeding the complementarity piece because that's something i really liked about the book Brian, was that there are these huge what i call red threads running through it so complementarity is one learn unlearn relearn I'm putting my words on it. Is is a second one, the responsibility of an individual to constantly become deliberately developmental. So, can you take us through why it's so important the the idea of changing lenses?
1: Yes. So, one of the concepts that we build from is to respond adequately to mm-hmm. any changing situation. You need at least as big a variety of responses to the challenge that's coming your way as the scale and complexity of the challenge contains in challenges. Which is huge in this case. (laughs) Exactly. We're (laughs) facing a huge challenge, set of challenges across the climate catastrophe, across society, across nature, everything that you look at is a huge set of challenges that are interwoven. Mm. And as Elizabeth Savin says, we're at a point where we have to multi-solve. We have to find single actions that will simultaneously solve multiple problems. To multi-solve, we need to understand the challenge from all possible perspectives in order to find ways to rise to the challenge. And we need to have the imagination to see how not only are different aspects of different challenges interrelated, but that the way of solving that challenge, the benefits of solving that challenge also have multiple interrelated components. And if we manage to multi-solve, we can actually get far more bang for our buck. By investing one euro in a multi-solution, we might get 10 euros of solution benefit, whereas if we invested in individual solutions, we would maybe not even get one euro back per solution. It would end up being a net cost and a load. Now, in order to be able to see clearly all of the different options for success So we have this requisite variety of solutions that is larger than the variety of our challenge. In the book, in chapter nine, for example, we put down the list of 28 different forms of thought that people begin to develop after they've mastered linear logic. Yes. And these, for example, form 28 different classes of lenses to look at the world through. Many systems thinkers get very good at the class of thought forms, which is around static contexts, static structures. Yes. And they may be extraordinarily good at really seeing how everything ties together, but they just are not naturally looking at this as a dynamic system that is constantly moving. Yeah. So, for example, if they try to achieve a balance, they're looking at a static balance, mm. whereas actually the system is constantly moving, <clears throat> constantly changing. There's a constant movement from its current state into some opposite state.
0: Yeah. So I really like the you and your thoughts part. I really like that. But can you also take us through some sort of context structure thought forms? I really liked because it helped me frame what I think <laughs> the relationship relatedness thought forms and then transformation thought forms. Can you just take us through the different forms because I think that 's really, really helpful as a tool for individual leaders to to think and to deliberately think about okay, what are my thought forms and how do I use them differently
1: yes, yes, gladly so the the first set of thought forms that people tend to develop are the static structure thought forms mm. what many people think of when they think of systems thinking the next one that people typically begin to develop are the process thought forms or the movement thought forms where people begin to see how something is changing or moving over time mm. you know and one of the critical ones there is simply that whatever is Is always in movement and invariably towards something that is opposite in some way, something it isn't. Now, neither of those contain within it an understanding of the interrelationship between things. And that's then the set of seven relationship thought forms. And once people begin to use those thought forms effectively, they easily see not only how are things connected where everybody else is not even seeing the connection.
2: Mm.
1: And you can imagine if, if somebody is a business leader, a change agent, an activist in Extinction Rebellion, whatever you're doing, the more clearly you can see how things have some kind of relationship to other things, the more you can see points of leverage yeah. Where you might be able to change something quite easily over here. Mm-hmm. And because it's connected to something very difficult and complex over there, you're able to change the big, difficult, complex thing by working on something that is closer to you and easier. Yeah. Now and I'll I think give it also allows example. you to
0: look at, at the human system though. It allowed me to take to also look at just my relationship and the interconnectedness of my relationships so what I call the yes. human systems. And, and I love the fact that then you can fit it back into the ecosystem.
1: Yes, yes, exactly. Now, and I'll pick up on that. So as you mentioned at the beginning, one of the other sets of lenses we look through through the book is the interrelated six ecosystems of yes. my internal ecosystem, Our interpersonal ecosystem. Stratum three is the ecosystem of roles and tasks in an organization. Ecosystem four is where companies are incorporated, it's the ecosystem of capitals and stakeholders and the relationship between companies. Ecosystem five is the local economic ecosystem or local social and environmental ecosystems. Mm. And ecosystem six is our global planetary ecosystems or set of ecosystems. So things like the global economy, the global environment, mm. global society. Within each of those ecosystems, there are flows, movements, there are static structures, there are relationships, mm. and there is potential for transformation. So if I think of stratum one, my internal ecosystem, which is where my ego sits mm-hmm. as well, mm. you my relationship with myself is the basis of everything else that I do in all of the other five ecosystems. And so the more that I see how different parts of me are in relationship to each other, the more effectively I can show up as a whole human being in what I'm doing. And I give a simple example. One Aspect of myself that I have always been extremely proud of. And I would cling on to this until the last possible moment. If anybody threatened me with losing my creativity, I would cling on to that. I would sacrifice everything else before I would give up on my creativity. And my creativity comes from having a visceral, a, a gut sense of the gap between what could be and what is, or what ought to be and what is. In, in a sense, I really feel climate change. And this is what drove me out of Procter & Gamble 13 years ago and led me to try all kinds of things inside Procter & Gamble before that, mm. was just feeling already in the early 2000s that where we're heading with the climate is just uncomfortable. It's painful for me. Mm-hmm. What I would for many years of my life have paid a fortune to get rid of is my tendency towards depression.
2: Mm-hmm.
1: And I have a, a lifetime of history with depression, starting when I was a very young teenager in South Africa and for almost all of my life i would have given everything that i had apart from my creativity to get rid of my depression and it struck me about 3 or 4 years ago i saw how the two of them are in relationship to each other mm-hmm. they are different different expressions or consequences of the same sensitivity in my body to the gap between what is and what could be. My depression comes when I feel, physically feel the difference between who I could be and who I am. And once I realized that what I would not want to sacrifice, regardless of what I was giving up in order to keep my creativity and what I wanted to Give a fortune to get rid of my depression,
2: Mm.
1: we're in such a deep relationship with each other that I could not get rid of one without getting rid of the other. I could not keep the one without keeping the other. And by seeing that relationship, it's given me a lot more peace with myself of recognizing actually, I am very pleased with the whole that I am. Mm. And if mm. I were to try to take away part of myself, I would diminish the entire whole, which is yeah. not what I want to do. I actually want to grow the whole.
0: Yeah, and it's it's just a great example for me of finding balance in your internal ecosystem, but also harnessing things as opposed to managing them. I mean, you touch on this when you talk around harnessing conflict, not managing it. But I love the idea of, taking a system which has opposites in it but like you say there is a balance to be found and harnessing it and building a capacity to thrive yes through a different model and you know you touch on that in the chapter on economy but also in other chapters it's also the pillar of complementarity so how do you harness who you are in this case and how do you use it moving forward to build capacity to thrive which for me then ripples through the six ecosystems and I had this thought Graham when I was reading your book and I thought how do I do that what do I have to harness internally and then how do I build capacity to thrive not only individually but also I work a lot with organizations on creating a more collaborative inclusive culture which is essentially taking what works and building upon it so it's rebuilding if you like or reinventing but it's not reinventing from nothing so can you tell us a bit more about building capacity to thrive and how you see that giving us a different model?
1: Yes. Yes, I'll dive into that. I know it's a vast question. Sorry. It's, <laughs> no, it's it's a lovely question. It's It's a question that could have an entire series of podcasts just to itself. Agreed.
2: <laughs> Agreed.
1: <laughs> so one of the – I'll start by saying that If you look at that question through each of the six strata from Mm. my internal ecosystem through to the global planetary ecosystem, building capacity to thrive looks different in each of those six strata. Yeah. So if I start with my internal ecosystem, and that is one ecosystem that every single person on the planet has the most possibility to build capacity to thrive in
2: mm.
1: building capacity to thrive is inherently building capacity in two directions. The one direction is building capacity in the stories that we're using as templates to interpret what's happening yeah what, what in the book we refer to as our meaning making stories. Mm. So when the IPCC report was released two weeks ago, on Monday, as I looked at the broadcast and went through it, my first reaction, my first meaning-making was, Mm. okay, there's nothing really new in here. That's a relief. It's no worse than I had feared it would be. And that, for me, that meaning-making story template led me to feel quite relaxed about it. But by the Tuesday, it had begun to sink into me that what had changed was the tone of the language. It had moved from presenting error bars, as scientists always do, mm. to make clear what is it that we are absolutely certain about? And what is it that we don't have absolute certainty at a scientific level? Mm. And, you know, Scientific uncertainty is already way more certain than certainty (laughs) for normal conversation. And what had changed was the language of the opening three words, it is unequivocal. Mm. That had changed. And because my background is science, what that meant for me, that change in language, really brought home to me more than anything else could have in the report just how little time we have left, just how close to the edge we are. And that kicked me into a space of loss of energy and thinking, well, what can we do? Mm. Now, the only thing that had changed between Monday and Tuesday was which internal story was I using to attach meaning to the words in the report? Mm. Which lens was I looking through and which story was I using to attach meaning? The first capacity to build, to build internal capacity, is to build more and more, let's say, emotional capacity to recognize that whatever emotions I'm feeling right now are coming out of the stories I'm using to interpret what I'm taking in from the world. And that the more I can recognize that there are multiple stories that I have available to me and even more stories that I could use, the more capacity I have to truly understand what actually is there and what do I have to work with.
0: And I think that's really it reminds me of an analogy I use a lot when I'm working with teams around the opticians, you know, when they change the lenses for you yeah. and you get a completely different view. And, and it is like that. And that, that's how I help myself do it i have to visualize changing a lens
1: (laughs) yes yes exactly it's exactly that the more that we can consciously do that the more options we will see for success and to make progress and this comes back to if we only have one story template in our library of templates to look at the world through, we'll only see one kind of meaning in the world. If we only use templates that are around the world, around problems,
2: mm.
1: then we will only see problems and we will only look at possibilities to solve problems. Yeah. Now, that is only going to work if something is, is a problem in the first place. You know, I am not a problem. I'm a mystery to explore. People Mm. are not problems. They are mysteries to explore. I completely agree. (laughs) If your only lens to look at other people through is a lens of problems and solutions, you're going to completely miss much of what other human beings are and yourself. Mm. Whereas if you use the lens of a mystery to explore, you'll see far more my recognition of the relationship between the creativity that I'm so proud of and the depression I'd love to get rid of, recognising that relationship was only possible because I was using the lens of I'm a mystery to explore, not a problem to solve. And so I explored the mystery of how can these two things coexist in one me?
0: Yeah, which is quite a lot of complexity in one me. If I scale that to an organization, <laughs> because organizations are people, essentially, but how do that's a lot of mysteries to explore, which for me sounds quite exciting and quite emergent. And, and I would love to do that. But how do you see organizations trying to structure that? And how do you help them um, define what I call the model that works for them?
1: Yes. So I'll start with what you've just said, the model that works for them. This is absolutely critical. You know, one of the worst things that any business leader could do is go and look at what works somewhere else <laughs> which is what they all in, do <laughs> which is what they all do and in a cookie cutter approach try to replicate that mm. exact same thing mm. you know it's it's perfectly obvious in a human sense if you have a child that is growing up and clearly has a really big, strong physique, possibly the right sport for that child might be something like powerlifting or shot put. Mm. Whereas if you have a child growing up that has superb motor reflexes, is relatively short, probably relatively slender as well, and superb vision, Mm. maybe the right sport for that child is superbike racing or Formula One, yeah? And you would not apply the shot put training program to somebody whose nature is superbike racing. Yeah. yeah, yeah. Same for organisations. You you cannot expect to simply take a sociocratic or holocratic structure that works in one organisation and just cookie cutter transplant it into yours. Yeah. So it, it is really important. Yes, look elsewhere. Yes, learn from what works elsewhere and recognize what is the uniqueness of your own organization. Absolutely. And what are the strengths that that uniqueness brings? So you have to explore your organization as a mystery in its context, see the uniqueness, recognize that your organization is an open, complex system in permanent movement Permanently interrelated within itself and with other organisations, and you'll notice here I'm using the thought forms, the twenty-eight yes, yes. post-rational <laughs> thought forms. By looking at your organisation as a a whole system of structures, movement, and relationships, you open up space to be able to transform your organisation as an open system, dynamic mm. open system. Mm from where it is now, step-by-step step, to where it can get to to be more functional in its relationship as an open dynamic system to its context in a local mm-hmm. business ecosystem. And by doing that, you know, you can only do that if you've built your inner capacity along the two dimensions. And I'll come back for a moment. I talked about the one dimension as how many meaning-making stories do we have access to? like the Mm. lenses at the optician. Do we Mm. just have one lens that we can only use to make meaning? Or do we have an entire array of 300, 400 different lenses, including lenses that correct for astigmatism, short sight, long (laughs) sight, chromatic aberration, pink lenses, purple lenses, everything. (laughs) And we need to develop our fluidity in using all 28 of the post-rational thought forms the Mm. ways of thinking that we develop Mm. after we've mastered binary logic. Once we've developed both of those inside ourselves, then we have the internal capacity, stratum one, to begin to really understand other people as complex open systems, to work on how we interact with other people as then a complex open social system to explore how then these people are in relationship to their roles, their accountabilities, the tasks they're doing in stratum three of the organization, Mm. which then enables us to see how do all of these roles, tasks, accountabilities, the organization design, the workflow, all of that, what is that right now? How are different bits connected? Where is it that if we make a change over here, Because of the interconnections, it's going to automatically change something else over there. And what can we see of what that change over there might mean? Is it a helpful change or an unhelpful change? And when we say, is it helpful or unhelpful? One of the thought forms is, what is the frame of reference I'm using when I evaluate something as helpful, unhelpful, good, bad, true, false Mm. So it's really critical that business leaders develop the fluidity whenever they're taking a decision to not only take the decision based on the data available, but also to recognize that every decision is always a comparison between the data and some Mm. frame of reference. And is the frame of reference the only one relevant to use? If it's not the only one, is it the most appropriate one? Mm. And if you think it is the only one, how do you know that it's the only one? So all of these are illustrations of how if you want to transform an organization from the caterpillar it is now to the butterfly that it could become, you need to develop the inner capacity to see far more than most leaders are currently able to see of the static structures, how things are moving, how things are in relationship to each other before you can begin working in the seven transformation thought forms
2: Mm. and
1: actually transform something. And I'll say one more thing and then I'll stop talking for a moment, (laughs) which is one of the things that is vital is to see clearly what is hidden, what Mm. is always assumed for a fish to transform itself, for example, into a flying fish. It's critical to recognize that water exists and that what's not water is air or Mm. solid land. -hmm. You know, fish that can't recognize the water that simply are embedded in that context could never transform into a flying fish. And so this ability to see what is what we're embedded in Mm -hmm. is vital. And that's why stratum 4 in our six ecosystems, the stratum wherein corporations sits, capital stakeholders. It's vitally important for business leaders to see that ecosystem, that stratum clearly, because that shapes the container of possible and impossible actions. It shapes the container of what you can do in a safe, anti-fragile way versus what you cannot do Mm. in a safe, anti-fragile way for the organization design, the culture, the relationships between people and each individual's internal psychological safety at work.
0: Yeah, which often they try and sort of summarize in an org chart. And as you were talking, I was just thinking, oh my goodness, a lot of that is summarized and presented back to the organization in a rigid sort of individual box structure it was really interesting as you were talking I was thinking okay strata four how do you visualize that as a system as opposed to a sequence of organizational boxes where you have sort of hierarchy and it's quite black and white essentially in terms of how binary it is and the people working behind it are you know everything but binary <laughs> so you know how do you translate that complexity I'd be interested in how you see leaders transitioning from what they see on an org chart, which will condition the stories they're telling themselves and how they visualize it, to what you're working with them to create, which is something more holistic, more system, more systems thinking like, and also more complex, essentially. How do they transition from one to the other?
1: I'll give you an example of one place where you can start to make that transition. So. In my old company, Procter Gamble, one of the standard mantras throughout the organization was the consumer is boss. If consumer research says we need a blue package, it doesn't matter what my boss said. My boss could say we need a green package until he's blue in the face. Mm. The consumer is boss. So that was never visible on the org chart. That the mm. consumer was actually the boss of everybody else, <laughs> and because you're bringing was, up visuals for
0: me, yes,
1: yeah, because it was never visible in the org chart that mm. the consumer as a stakeholder is boss. It needed to be consciously remembered in each person's mind at a point where the power dynamics in an organization, and that you know, power is not evil. Power is necessary. We need. Power dynamics in organizations. Power is the capacity to get stuff done.
2: Yeah.
1: So, you know, don't tell me that we need power free, completely flat, non hierarchical organizations. Mm -hmm. There's always a need for a hierarchy, but it needs to be a functional hierarchy rather than an ego hierarchy. Yeah. So, because the org chart never had the consumer. Explicitly on the org chart as part of the power hierarchy, it took a lot of effort and sometimes personal courage to bring the consumer's voice into the room in some meetings. Now, by simply putting that consumer onto the org chart as part of the organization, Mm. Yes, they're outside the semi-permeable boundary that separates the open system of P&G internals from the rest of the world. Mm-hmm. But it's an open system. The consumers interact directly with P&G people and products. The second one I'll put in is investors. You know, We know that in some situations, investors are the boss, not the consumers. Yes, yes, clearly. Yeah. You know, that is most clear at the end of every fiscal year, where mm-hmm. <laughs> many companies—you know, P&G is not rare in that sense—many companies do all kinds of interesting things as you approach the end of the fiscal year, in order to make sure that you hit the projections of 12 mm. months ago sufficiently smoothly, or have a very clear explanation of why you're not hitting the projections smoothly. And for companies that are mandated to issue quarterly reports, that happens every quarter. Now, the way most companies are incorporated, that phrase, the consumer is boss, breaks down. It's very, very fragile because in any situation where there's a choice between the investor as boss or the consumer as boss, because the investors are the only ones who actually have voting power in the general meetings, mm. the investors are the people who take decisions around who's on the board and things like that. The consumer is only boss up to a very, very limited and fragile point. And the other stakeholders in Procter & Gamble, our natural environment, the cities that PNG operates in. The staff of Procter Gamble, in terms of their human capitals of time, energy, their intellectual capital, none of those capitals are represented in the structure of the company at a general meeting voting level. Mm. Mm. And because of this, at Stratum Four, because the company is only incorporated around the needs of financial capital as represented by the investors in the company. All of the interrelationships between all of the other kind of capitals, the interdependence of our global economy on our global ecology, mm. none of that is actually formally part of the company. It is only able to creep in, in a, an ad hoc, maybe even post hoc sense to the limits of benevolence. Of the investors. Mm. And we know from apartheid in South Africa, for the bulk of the South African population to be completely dependent on the benevolence of the white voters and their elected Mm. politicians could never get to a country that was functional for everybody. And equally, if our global planet, uh, nature, society, and everything is dependent on the benevolence of only financial capital and its, rel- its representatives. Mm. We're never going to build a circular, let alone a regenerative economy that works for all. Mm. We have to build a regenerative economy, at least get to a circular economy as quickly as possible. Mm. And to do that, we have to reincorporate, we have to rebuild our companies, incorporate them in a way where, All of the capitals and their representatives have an appropriate relationship inside each company, inside each general meeting, Mm. with an appropriate balance of power between the two so that the interrelationship between them is Mm. now visible, can Mm. be worked with, so that the whole system that we're embedded in can be transformed to one that works for all, to close off on that. That's something that unfortunately is hidden from most people's view, that the way we incorporate companies places massive limitations on what can happen in addressing our multiple challenges Mm -hmm. and places huge limitations on what can happen in how we work inside companies, in how we interact with each other. And last but not least, in our relationship with ourselves, our Mm. stratum one internal ecosystem, how many people in companies today are miserable inside themselves because they're in this trap of, I have to keep this job. Otherwise, the people I care about are not going to be able to eat Mm. tomorrow. Mm. But the longer I work in this job, the more I'm contributing to destroying the planet. What can I do? I can't get out of this. And that's true all the way through companies. So senior business leaders are in the same situation in many cases.
0: Yeah, I think particularly post-pandemic, where people have had the time to think about their why, let's put it that way, and why they go to work and what they're doing and the complementarity to come back to our discussion of, you know, what they want and what they do and what their constraints you know, to feed, to feed their, their family and their environment. So I know that time is running, but I can't let you go and I can't let you, you leave our listeners without talking about from insight to action or from intention to action. So, you know, you were talking about how business leaders can actually transition. And I know that your book was also meant as a practical guide, like a toolkit for reinvention. And, you know, how can leaders use what's in your book to get from the myriad of insights that it gives you to action?
2: Step one is to look
1: for whatever is near you mm-hmm. that you can do something with. One of the patterns that we teach in our programs, we call MacGyvering from <laughs> MacGyver. I like that. <laughs> for, for people who can remember MacGyver. Yes. <laughs> and One of the things about MacGyver is that he was brilliant at looking at what was at hand and then creatively, what can I do with what's at hand to address the challenges I'm facing rather than what's the challenge I have? What's the best way of solving it? Oh, I don't have anything available to solve it that way. Give up. Mm -hmm. So the first thing is, you know, Start MacGyvering in your environment. Look at what you have available to you inside yourself, around you, and what can you creatively do with that to do something. I love that.
0: Start MacGyvering. Okay. Yes. Start I invite mean, all, all our listeners to start MacGyvering. That's great.
1: Exactly. Start MacGyvering. Yeah. I'm constantly, whenever I'm sinking into a, a sense of, oh, I think, I, I think I'm going to give up. This is just too big, too difficult. I can't see any way forward. I remind myself, you know, what would MacGyver do? Well, he'd look around him. He'd look, what is there here? And then his yeah. cr- imagination would run riot, and he'd explore, well, what might I be able to do with what I have here? That then leads to the second thing, imagination. One of the other patterns, we call it Psycho 1, you know, build up your inner psychopath. <laughs> and the the key strength that some of us who are empaths, high empaths would benefit from developing is the capacity to see what is the best thing to do, regardless of what our feelings are telling us we have to do. Sometimes the best thing to do is what our feelings are telling us we should absolutely not do and at all costs. Yeah. And one of the things linked to psycho one is to also ask yourself if something bad has happened, what good can you imagine might come out of this bad thing that's happened? So I use that with myself, with the IPCC report when I was feeling negative and thinking, Oh, this is now really bad. I think we've crossed the point of no return Mm. to help me do some MacGyvering. I was saying to myself, okay, I'm feeling really bad, low energy, everything inside my nature is saying, do nothing. Well, what would I do if I felt optimistic and energized? Well, I would probably write a couple of, I would write a blog right now and post Mm. a couple of tweets So I did that, even though I didn't feel like doing that. And one of the things that helps in that is also linked to Psycho 1, is what good might come out of this bad thing that has happened? And if you can't imagine anything good that might come out of it, can you at least accept that it's because your imagination is limited? Mm. And that bit of recognizing that my imagination is limited I find that enormously helpful in two ways. Number one, it gives me a way of finding hope because I think to myself, I'm not seeing everything that is and everything that could be. My imagination is limited. And so just because I can't see any solution doesn't mean that there is no solution. It just Mm -hmm. means my imagination is not Mm -hmm. able to see a potential solution yet. And the second thing it means is that Go out and talk to people.
2: Yeah,
1: I might yeah. not be able to see a solution, but in conversation with you, you might see half a solution, mm. and I see half a solution, and by talking to each other, we then both see an entire solution. Yeah, that's great. It's the power of collective, for you me, know, collective yes. intelligence, piece. Mm-hmm. Yes, exactly, and that, by the way, also comes back to how we're incorporated. Some of the best products that Procter and Gamble has developed have been developed in dialogue mm-hmm. between the creative people in the company and people outside the company, be it suppliers, consumers, whatever. If P&G were incorporated in such a way that the consumers were actually part of the general meetings, suppliers yeah. were part of the general meetings with the share of the rewards and voting rights, mm-hmm. or imagine if Google was incorporated in a way that everybody using Gmail Had a real engagement with the company and a share of the wealth generated. How much Mm. more could Google or Alphabet be now if they were incorporated in a way that put all capitals and stakeholders onto an equitable footing? Yeah. And in particular, when it comes to today's massive challenges, Mm. this is why we have to, in stratum four, reincorporate in an inclusive way, because that is the key that will open up the door to the speed and range of innovation that we need to rise to the challenges we're facing.
0: Absolutely. And I think if you want to be as inclusive as possible, we're back to our first discussion, you need as many lenses as possible in the space because otherwise you're just, you know, your example about constraining your imagination, the good news is the constraints are all yours. So... Well, that's the bad news, I suppose. But the good news is, so therefore, you can act on them. And I think you know, organisations need to start understanding inclusion. Yes, uh, and it starts with, of course, where we started understanding your inner ecosystem, and then adding perspectives as much as possible. You know, it's what you don't know; it's not what you know, and that's quite a different paradigm, isn't it, from from the one that is
1: in leadership today. Yes, exactly. That having a stance of ignorance rather the stance of knowledge, opens up so much more possibilities to see Mm. options for success that are currently hidden from a leader's sight.
0: Yeah, it's a big paradigm shift, but I think it's one that needs to happen and happen quite quickly, and those changes don't happen quickly. So it's interesting to see when you put collective intelligence behind it, how we could make that happen in a more collective, but also a little bit quicker in terms of, the way organizations are being led. Like you say, power, I think collective power can work for the collective good. It doesn't have to be a bad thing. Although that's how it's framed today often because it's within a culture of fear. But I think if you put it in a culture of courage and ignorance, let's put it that way, then it can work wonders. Yes. So, yeah. Exactly. Graham, what would be your final call to action for leaders and organizations looking to rebuild their company? And by that, I mean, define the model that works for them going forward post-pandemic.
1: Final call to action from me is, first of all, we have to do different to what we've done before. So the first call to action would be go off and do some experiments, try some yeah. things out and see what happens and learn from them. You know, the second call to action, I would say, is Jack and I wrote the book as a DIY guidebook to people who want to do such experiments. I would encourage everybody to read the book mm. and the, the book is designed to be read in whatever order fits you. It's, you don't not have to read the book from front to back. Maybe if you're an economist, you're better off reading the book. In fact, from back to front, <laughs> <laughs> you know, Read whichever chapter appeals to you the most, and then try out some of the things in the book. Nothing in the book is gospel of this is exactly how it has to be. They're Mm -hmm. all things that we see work and that we think are currently at least good enough to try. They're the best that we're seeing, but that doesn't mean that it's the best that there is or all that there is, but it's certainly the Mm -hmm. best that we are currently aware of. And then the third one would be, you know, for those who who want to dive deeper, mm. we're running programs around the book itself, both to more deeply understand the entire set of concepts in the book in our fundamentals program, as well as specific programs for people that want to reincorporate their company as a fair shares commons, or who want to develop an internal developmental dialogue within the company that addresses the inner human ecosystem and the interhuman ecosystems and together with partners for example in sociocracy or holacracy we run programs on how you can redesign your entire organization in ways that match well to the developmental dialogue practices
2: mm-hmm.
1: and to Reincorporating. And the final thing I would put in for somebody who is thinking that the startup world might be a better place for them to be. You know, it's uh-huh. st- startups started by people who have five, ten, or more years of work experience are on average more successful than startups started by people with no work experience. Mm. So Now is actually the perfect time for people who want to create a life that is whole for them and who recognize that creating their own company or working in a startup that they are part of creating is a more appropriate route than what they're doing, trying to climb the corporate ladder.
2: Mm.
1: We're running a startup bridging program to explore what's right for you. And then following on from that, we're, we have an entire startup factory that we're running of a three-month-long wow. startup university which trains you in this methodology along with all other standard startup stuff with a very powerful design thinking backbone.
0: Mm-hmm. I'm, uh, a big, I'm a big fan of design thinking for that reason. Yeah, exactly.
1: Yeah. Brilliant yeah. thing. So you know, people come into it and startups come out of it and then go into our accelerator program. And we're hard at work on building a pool of investors who will then invest in the startups that come out of our startup factory.
0: Oh, wow. And so the whole value chain.
1: Whole companies that are incorporated Fair Shares Commons have whole sociocratic, holocratic ways of organization design and deliberately developmental dialogue practices in Strata 1 and 2.
0: Wow. So, for all the entrepreneurs, entrepreneurs, business leaders that are listening that are thinking maybe they want to either understand more about how they can do that in their organization or maybe transition into a different startup environment, where can they find you, Graeme, and where can they find out more about what you do and all and these wonderful programs around bridging for startups and fair commons companies, where can our listeners find out more about
1: you? Yes, so they can find out more about me first of all, a book, rebuild. The Economy, Leadership and You is globally available in online bookstores. And for people whose wallet is relatively emaciated at the moment or people who are not earning in a strong currency, Jack and I are committed to keep the PDF available for free. So you can also try out the book in PDF form. And that's the second place then to find me is on my personal website, which is graham-boyd.biz. And that's where you can get at the book and where you can get at a range of blogs. You can watch previous videos from our Rebuild monthly webinar series, which is on the last Thursday of every month. And the final place for all of our primary programs is our company website, which is evolute6.com. E-V-O-L-U-T-E-S-I-X dot com. And that's where you find information about our startup factory, about our various programs for individuals and corporates. And you'll also find a very early stage draft of another book that we're busy writing on deliberately developmental practices.
0: Oh, excellent. So the adventure continues.
1: (laughs) Exactly. It definitely continues.
0: Excellent. Thank you, Graham. Thank you for sharing your insight, your experience, and also your stories.
1: Only a pleasure. It's been a <laughs> delight talking to you, Susie. As, Likewise. As always. Thank you. Thank you. We hope you enjoyed
0: this episode. And if you did, please head over to iTunes and give us your opinion and your feedback. So it's bye from me for now. And see you soon for the next episode of Let's Talk Transformation.